vessel. And I'm going to take my text from Jeremiah 18. But what, I mean, that's not a verse, a word that we use very often these days. So here's what I think it kind of, it at least implies that it's some kind of implement. It's often it's a jar, it's a bucket, it's some kind of tool to serve a specific purpose, some cases general purposes, but it's almost always some type of container that we use to do something. And it's interesting how the Bible talks about human beings as vessels. Probably not a term that we would apply to ourselves in many ways, but what it means to us right out of the gate is there's purpose in our existence. God-given purpose in the design of who we are, what we look like, the shape that we fill, how we are being used, what God wants to do. And that's where we're going to go with this message tonight. You're a vessel. I'm a vessel. God has an intent for your life. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 18 and uh, see what the Lord has to say to us through this, uh, these verses. Beginning with verse 1, the Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop and I will speak to you there. You ever notice that sometimes God speaking to us is preceded by our obedience to something he says to initiate it. It's like, I've got something to say to you, but I want to get you in a spot first. Because that location, whether it's a geographical location or it's a heart location or a mental location, that place is going to have something to do with what I want to say. So, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. I'm going to speak to you there. So I did, as he told me, and found the potter working at his wheel. But as the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped, or the jar did not turn out as he hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. So he's got this visual, and he's wondering, why am I here? What is this all about? He's watching this professional potter at work, and then God speaks. And he speaks a message to Jeremiah that's to be delivered to the nation. Oh, Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. So if you know me at all, you know I'm a process guy. I, I, I'm wired that way. I think processes, and so... Um, I've got staff working on systems. This past year, you ask any of them, John's laughing. You ask them about systems, they'll tell you that, uh, that I just have loaded them down with working on systems. And because they're repeatable processes, and because we want consistency and excellence in all that we do, then we're putting together these systems so that when things happen that are unexpected, things can continue on as though they were expected, and it just helps us to stay uh, excellent in ministry and helps us to involve our volunteers' um, system. So I think in process, I'm a little biased. I think God does too. That's the only time I've ever got an amen out of Eric. He's definitely a process guy, way beyond me. Uh, but 
So as I'm reading this passage, I'm thinking about, okay, this happened, and then that happened, and as a result of that, that happened, and then there's this outcome. So I'm going to walk you through that tonight. I want to talk to you about the process God uses to reshape us into vessels that are excellent for his purposes. I think that's what this is really all about. So let's just kind of jump right into the three-stage process that uh, we're going to look at this evening. The first stage of reshaping is disappointment. And that might not be a very exciting place to start. But when we look at this passage, it's clearly there in the first part of verse 4. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So there's disappointment. In fact, if you haven't read through the book of Jeremiah lately, I'd encourage you to do so through that lens. The whole book is a book about disappointments, bitter disappointments. And you see it in so many different ways and so many different layers. The disappointment that Jeremiah is feeling as he is experiencing the heart of God at work within him, disappointment upon disappointment. Because the purposes of God were not being carried out through the vessel, this jar of clay as a nation that he had hoped would happen. And what he had hoped to happen is very clear as you read the text. God's hope for Israel was that through them he could reveal himself to all the people of the earth. I mean, a lot of people get it all mixed up. They think, well, you know, Israel was this kind of favorite child of God. And uh, so they get all this fuss and there's all this stuff about them. And, you know, what makes them so much better than all the rest of that's not it at all. God is saying, hey, listen, I've chosen you because I want to reveal myself to everybody on the planet. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in real history, through real stories of real people interacting with God. And I'm going to show to everybody that those who honor and love me are blessed, blessed families, prosperous. I mean, it's going to be the good life. And so... To start it all off, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this all kicked off just by performing a miracle. I mean, you understand, right? Israel would not exist as a nation if it were not for an initial miracle. It's the story of Abraham and Sarah. And they're in their old age. I mean, even when they were at their prime of life, they couldn't produce a child. And now at age 75, God says to Abraham... I'm going to start a family for you, you and Sarah. And you're going to have so many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and descendants that, I mean, you're going to look back in time and will not be able to, like the sand on the beach, you cannot count this, the, the number of people that are going to populate this nation. Sarah heard, overheard this messenger of God talking to Abraham outside, outside the tent, and she cracked up. I mean, read the Bible. She, this is funny. This guy is off his nut, and uh, and it looks like Abraham's buying this story. And then God does the miracle, and along comes Isaac, and then generation after generation, the purposes of God are fulfilled as he's 
He's growing a nation that came from that initial miracle. And then there's other stuff. There's the whole Egypt thing and Exodus where they come across, uh, they, they come across a dry ground through the Red Sea and how all the stories of the plagues of Egypt and then the wilderness thing. And then God said, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a, you know, I'm going to give you a bridal cottage. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to give you a whole country to live in. And it's going to, they called it the, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you a really special place to live. And the, you read back on the honeymoon years between Israel and a relationship with God, and it was sweet. And that's the way God intended it to be. I just want people to see how good it is to live in relationship with me. And then it all went crazy. And they rejected that relationship, which Jeremiah refers to several times as sort of a marriage said, I, I want this marriage, you're my, like my bride. And then, you know, we have this honeymoon and life is great. And I provided this wonderful place that we're going to share together. And then it's like the nation totally rejects their God. And they make, they make up their own gods to replace the one who's done all of this for them and created them for who they are. And it just goes absolutely crazy until God says, listen, it's got to change. It's, it's like a potter sitting at a wheel making a vessel that he takes so much pride in his, his craftsmanship, but then something happens and it just, it doesn't turn out at all. So he crumbles it into a big lump of clay and he starts over. Disappointment, bitter disappointment. So I brought along some, uh, some modern day vessels. Let me introduce them to you. This is one of the favorites in our house. A kitchen utensil. I mean, I look at this and I smell roast turkey and lasagna. And uh, Joan's got a killer chicken and rice dish. But I mean, so many special occasions. First of all, this was in her mom's kitchen for decades, right? I mean, all the memories of the holidays and special family times around the table with this this thing, just the best food you can imagine. Been handed down, and now it's happened over and over again in our own house. This is a cool vessel. It's a kitchen vessel, and it has a distinct use. And when I look at it, I have very, very clear memories of that vessel. And then I've got this little guy, canning jar, and uh, I don't know where this one came from, but I, I know that Joan has done a lot of canning in our earlier years. I mean, I think we're way over that now, way, way beyond that. And, but I think even back to my mom, who can literally canned hundreds of jars of fruits and vegetables when I was a kid. And my very favorite was the peaches. So as kids, we'd go out, we lived in upstate New York, and there's a lot of, a lot of farmland around there. And uh, we would go, and we'd, we would pick you know, cherries and pears and peaches and all kinds of stuff, and mom would can them up. So I remember helping with that process, and she'd make a sweet juice. And more than once as a teenager, this and six pieces of toast was my breakfast. A whole jar. Great stuff. I highly recommend it. That's a vessel. And then we got this guy that um, came from um, the entryway to our house. It's purely decorative. 
It has no purpose whatsoever other than to sit there and look good. In fact, I won't tell anybody, but I had to dust it off because uh, it never gets used for anything. It's just, it's, it's cool. I love the look of it, but it's frankly useless. And if it disappeared tomorrow, we might notice and we might miss it for a minute, but no big deal. And then we got this little cheap plastic guy that I took off the lanai that isn't nearly as pretty as that one, but this guy gets used every day, probably every single day. Fill them up with water, um, take them around, water the plants on the lanai. Joan loves, she's a plant lover. She keeps them all looking healthy and alive and really good. Very useful utensil. And I'm a little disappointed in this one too because it's got a big old crack in the side there. And whenever I try to use it, which I did a couple weeks ago when she was gone, it's like the water just squirts sideways on me. How how are you supposed to get this in the plant? I don't know, but uh, there's different kinds of vessels. The scripture is very plain about that. God didn't, it's not a one size, one look, all of us, you know, like a bunch of coastline coffee mugs lined up on the table there where they all look exactly the same. You won't see that when it comes to the vessels that God uses. Everyone is distinct. Everyone is a little bit different and special in its own way. And that's what he's cast us as, as vessels to honor him with our lives and to serve him. I think one of the greatest disappointments God suffers through his vessels is resistance to the use and the purpose that he created us for. Resistance to that. I mean, you think back of all the examples in scripture when this took place. Let's go way back to Moses. Uh, So Exodus chapter 3, God is calling Moses, the whole burning bush thing. And what does Moses do? He said, no, God, you not, not me. Why, why me? Why, Why would you even consider me? I can't lead. I can't even talk to other people. Can you imagine saying that to God? Yeah, I mean, you you read the leadership studies, even in secular books today, and Moses is often referred to as one of the greatest leaders of all time. And yet when God said to him, I got a job for you to do, his response was, how can you expect me to lead? Me. God had shaped him for that over a long period of time. And yet, when it came to that burning bush moment, Moses needed a reshaping so that he could get beyond the resistance of his own heart to be and do what God had created him for. Jeremiah himself, I mean, read his story in chapter 1. He tells how, we sang it tonight, in my mother's womb. You formed me, and you called me, and literally God said to him, Jeremiah, I knew you when you were a little thing inside your mom, and my purposes for you were already in motion at that time, and I called you to a specific purpose in speaking to this nation. You know what his response was? I I can't do it. I'm I'm a child. I'm incapable of that assignment. I'm sorry. You got the wrong guy. And God had to go through a process of reshaping his thinking to break down the resistance so that Jeremiah could be used of God in the mighty way that he was. Think about Jonah. This is a great example. Jonah. 
I love it. Uh, it's chapter 1, verse 3 of that book. And it says, it's all so funny. It says, so Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction in order to get away from the Lord. How many times? I mean, I mean first of all, um, you can get away from what he's asked you to do, but you can't get away from him. All right, he's going, he's going on this journey with you. So Jonah gets on this boat, and his plan is, I'm going to sail as far away as I can get from Nineveh, where God has told me to go. He, he didn't argue with God like Jeremiah and Moses. He just, it was all action. It's like, I'm gone. I'm out of here. God caught up with him and did a reshaping in the belly of a whale, and he broke down that resistance to do what God had purposed him to do. One more example. The Apostle Paul, who we know in the book of Acts initially as Saul, his name was Saul. And there was this time on the Damascus Road, you know, the bright light, he fell on the ground. God spoke to him and he said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus and I want to know one thing, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you working so hard to destroy everything I'm working so hard to build? We got to talk about this because you need a change of heart because I've called you to be an apostle to the peoples of the world, the Gentile nations, and we got to get together on this thing. And Paul, now Paul, goes through this reshaping process of God making, breaking down that resistance and remaking him into the man. I mean, this, this is the man who literally wrote two-thirds of our New Testament. And I want to take you to a passage that he wrote in the book of Romans. These are his own words. You talk about seeing the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. Look at this. Who in the world, I love this from the message translation. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Do you know for one moment, or do you for one moment suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question? Look at this. Clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, why did you shape me like this? Isn't it obvious that a potter has a perfect right to shape one lump of clay into a vase for holding flowers and another into a pot for cooking beans? And yet we ask, why did you shape me like this? I mean, that's an age-old question. Paul was dealing with it back then. We're still dealing with it today. God, why did you make me like this? Why do I look like this? Why, why do I live like, why do I feel what I feel? Why do I go where I go and do what I do? Why am I strong here and weak there? Why, why did you make me like this? And the answer is very clear. Because you're chosen. And you're chosen for a purpose. And that purpose is by God's design to fulfill some part of his much bigger plan to bring the nations of the world to himself. So we're all part of something that's much, much beyond, far beyond who we are, chosen for that purpose, resistant oftentimes, disappointment in some ways. We need a reshaping to do something about that, dis- that disappointment. Let's move on to the second step, second stage, which is the second stage of reshaping is correction. Back to Jeremiah 18, verse 4, but the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. 
started over. When I was uh, first starting uh, my doctoral program, I was so excited. It's like I got through all the screening process. They accepted me into the school. And uh, I, was, I was like, this, this is so good. I was pumped. And then I turned in my first assignment. And, uh, and the dean of the school happened to be the prof who graded my paper. And when it came back to me, he gave me a 30%. 30%. You talk about humbling. I mean, I was just stunned. I thought I'd done some pretty good work. So I got his phone number and I called him, Dr. Winston, please talk to me. Do I need to drop out of this program? <laughs> Am I not cut out for this? He said, no, Steve, settle down. Here, here's what, I, here's what I want you to get from this. Number one, I'm doing you a favor. Oh, well, thank you very much. He said, I'm doing you a favor because I believe it's going to help you to fail early so you can succeed later. He said, you need to learn how to learn. Okay. And so he started walking me through some things. And then he said to me, listen, if you'll rewrite this paper and resubmit it, I promise you I'll give you a passing grade. But here's the rules. I want you to delete your first paper. This is not a do-over. I want you to delete it and start from scratch. And I'm going, I am so busy. This is the last thing I need. I already did this assignment once. You know, let me, let me fix what's wrong and move. You know, if you do that, I'll fail you. But if you'll do it over, I promise you, no matter what you send to me, I'll give you a passing grade. So I did the work and I sent it in. I got it back. He gave me a 90%. So I guess consolation prize. But he taught me something that I needed to know that did set me up for success later on. Correction can be devastating at times. It can be very, very difficult to work our way through. But it's something that's going to bring out something that's better in us. Let's take a look at Hebrews. The New Testament deals with this issue as well. Have you, not, have you forgotten the encouraging words? I always smile when I read this. Have you forgotten these encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. It's initially not very encouraging for most of us. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, okay, and he punishes each, of, each one of us he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? It's, it's about moving into that next step, that next stage of correction where God is changing things in our lives that reshape us into something that's going to be beyond incredible and useful for his purposes. Most of us, I think, think less of what we're capable of than God thinks of us. And he knows, hey, if I, if I work, there's something here. And if I work with this a bit... There's going to be something of great value. I think of two illustrations of this from the scripture. The first one, oh, let's go on and do this, this first. Thing. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So we move from the pain to the peaceful and the reward that God has for us. So here we go. He looks at the, he uses the metaphor of a branch or a vine. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And 
He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. That's that correction process where he says, I've got something here. I have something of value and I'm going to work on it because even though it may be painful to have some things lopped off in our lives, it's going to produce more fruit that's going to bring more honor to God in the end. And then he uses another, the scripture uses another, another metaphor, that of gold. He's saying, I see gold in you, but I also see a bunch of other stuff that's worthless. And it's, it's making a mess out of the good that's there. These trials, he said, will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. I see gold in you. I want to refine that. I'm going to put you through the fire so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So he sees something beyond what we even see in ourselves. Think of Moses again. Lord, I'm not capable of that. But look what happened through him. Look at the Jeremiah, Jonah, the Apostle Paul, all these people who didn't see what God saw in them. And when they did hear what God was asking them to do, initially the response was, that can never happen. And God is saying, if you'll trust me, if you'll trust me, it's going to happen. And when you see the results of it, it's going to bring praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And you're going to be part of that blessing. God's correction in our lives. Let's go to the next one. Third stage. Third stage of reshaping is surrender. So we have disappointment. And then we move to correction and then we move to surrender. Verse 6. Can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. It's about getting to that point of allowing the potter to take us as that lump of clay, be pliable once again, and to do what he wishes in and through our lives. You know, this isn't popular theory today in our world. I mean, you, if you're influenced by all the graduation speeches, then you believe you can do and be anything you want to be, and as big as you can dream it, you can do it. And, uh, you know, think of the impossible, what's going to bring you fame and fortune and, uh, and fun and make your life uh, the best it can be and all of that. And, uh, you, know, you know, if that's worked for you, then... I'm fine with that. I think it probably has worked for people, especially the ones that get rich teaching that. But for some, if you're like me and probably a whole lot of other people, and that whole idea just seems an empty rabbit trail that you chase and never figure that thing out, I've got another option to offer you. And that is figure out what it is that would make God happy versus what will make you happy. And try that approach because he said... If you'll do that, then I'll make sure you get more than your share of joy out of this journey. Comes to that moment of surrender. I think Jesus modeled this for us on uh, the night of his crucifixion. He's in the garden, and he knows that um, he knows that the hours ahead are going to be absolutely excruciating. No human being should ever have to endure what he knew that he was going to face. And he cried out to God, and he said, Listen, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, 
That's my prayer. But nevertheless, if this is a contest of wills and your will is different from my will, then I surrender to your will, whatever that will is. It took him to the cross. It took him to his crucifixion, which is the greatest victory for you and I that ever happened in this universe. But it came out of the surrender of Jesus to do whatever God wanted him to do. And that's different somehow than trying to figure out how we can make ourselves happy. It's about what pleases the Father because when I please him, then I not only fulfill the purpose that I'm created for, but I get to share in the joys of God's plan being brought to reality on this planet for eternity. That's what he's calling us to, that time of surrender. I've shared bits and pieces of this, I think, a couple other times in the past. But the single, I would say, the single most powerful spiritual experience I've had in my life happened about 50 years ago. I was a teenager. And what Anthony and Brooke are doing with the youth and taking them to camps and having these events, it may seem at times like, you know, hey, that's just a bunch of kids having fun, which it should be. But I can tell you what, it changed my life. I remember distinctly, um, it was a youth convention I went to in Rochester, New York. There were 3,000 teenagers gathered from all over the state of New York. We were in this Eastman Kodak uh, Hall of Music, a huge grand theater, two or three balconies in that place. Unbelievable chandelier. If that place is still existing, I hope I get to go back there sometime and just to see if it's what I remember it to be. But it was, it was the potter's house for me. I was a skinny teenager, shy, um, easily embarrassed. If you drew attention to me in a group of people, I would turn ten shades of red. I would do anything to avoid having attention drawn to me because I didn't like that. My face would feel hot, and it was awful. And so... um, that's that's who I was in that moment. So here I'm in this this huge place with thousands of kids that I didn't know. And a powerful message is delivered and altar calls given. Hey, you know, if you're ready to just kind of surrender your life to what God wants you to do and be, come on up here on the stage. And, uh, you know, something happened in me because there was not a moment's hesitation in spite of the fact it was against everything that I knew myself to be in that moment, I think I was the first or one of the first to get up probably three-quarters of the way back in that auditorium and walk down that long, long aisle up onto the stage. And I remember being there for probably 45 minutes, and God did something in me. Deep, deep emotional stuff in me that I remember today, 50 years later, as much as I did in that moment. Because it was my time of surrender. And it was so deep in my heart that I knew that the words I was saying to God at that time would last for a lifetime. That was my commitment. It's not just what I'm feeling in this moment, and it could change tomorrow or in a week or so. No, I'm dealing with the kind of stuff that's going to determine my future, and I was laying it down and saying to God, whatever it is you want to do with my life, 
And regardless of what anybody else does, which was huge for me because I was as much, I was influenced as much by peer pressure at that time as any teenager is, no matter what anybody else may choose to do, and no matter what it might cost me, my life is yours. And I wish I could say that I lived up perfectly to that over these last five decades. I haven't. I'm flawed like all of us. But there have been critical moments, crossroads in my life when big decisions were being made that would determine the course of the future. And almost, I mean, repeatedly, I've come back to that same prayer again and that commitment. I can remember saying to God at different times, you remember that prayer I prayed, that skinny little red-faced kid back way back then? I meant that then, and I still mean it today. This is who I am. This is what I have determined to be. This is, this is my surrender to you. I, it's not going to happen for everyone the way it did for me because God made us all different. But I wish for everyone that there would be that time of surrender when we would all say, God, whatever it is, you have what kind of vessel you have made me to be for whatever purpose you may have in mind Take me like a lump of clay and shape me into what you want me to be. Or reshape me into what you had hoped that I would be. Just two more verses and then we're going to wrap it up. From 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again from message, message translation. In a well furnished kitchen, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but some waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to serve fine meals, others to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guests for their blessing. What I'm saying is, I think that if you'll go this direction, you stand a better chance of a better life and a better eternity than anything you might pursue out of your own hopes and dreams that might be appealing to the flesh, the fleshly part of us that wants everything to be pleasant and fun. What's the best vessel? It's the best vessel is the one that's needed in the moment. And he's saying to us, the scripture is saying to us, just be that. Be that person that God can use for his need in that moment. Not determined by your likes or dislikes, but by his needs and his purposes. And then finally, I, I want to close with this beautiful Old Testament passage, single verse. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We live, I think, in one of the most amazing times in human history. And you think of the technology and, and, and the globalism and travel and communications and um, I, so many things that are going on that are unprecedented in history. And yet the challenges are greater today than they ever have been. Joan and I sit on our back porch every morning and we pray for our kids and our grandkids because we know it's going to be tough for them. If it's not now, it will be in time to come. 
It's not going to be easy. But I think this, I think that next year and the year after and the years ahead are some of the greatest opportunities the church in our lifetime has ever had to just live for Jesus, just to be a vessel that he can use to allow his love and his power to flow through to do whatever it is that he's purposed to do. We're vessels. And he's saying, God's just, he's just looking all over the earth. And maybe right at this moment, he's glancing down at Melbourne, Florida, at Indian Harbor Beach. He's going, I wonder if there's anybody there. Be a part that's willing to do so, go through some reconstruction, some, some painful remolding in order to become useful to me in what I want to do on the Space Coast. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you've never arrived at that place of surrender to God, maybe tonight is a night when you're ready for that. God, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you, dealing with you, perhaps even before you got here this evening. And you're just ready to say, you know, I'm going to surrender my life, my future, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want him as my Savior. I receive him as my Lord. I want him to be the one that calls the shots in my life. I'm grateful that he's offering grace to cover all the past that might uh, in some ways cause me to stumble. But we're going to go forward with a new future because it's all predicated on me surrendering my life, my heart, my future to him. Anybody here this evening just say, I want to give my life to Christ tonight. Just slip up your hand. I want to pray with you as we close the service this evening. This is a moment of surrender for you, giving your heart to Jesus Christ. Anyone before we pray? Let's close together. Father, thank you for the incredible love that you have for us. Thank you for the power of your word. And I ask that the Holy Spirit would take these simple thoughts and plant them like seeds in our heart that at some point in the future will bear a wonderful harvest. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us this evening.